many open source projects aren't actually maintained and what that means for you, a massive new protocol vulnerability and some nice open source news. Welcome to Surveillance Support 153, where we are dedicated to keeping you private and secure with the latest news in the past week. I say we, uh, but it is just me today. There is no Nate. I am Henry from TechLore. Nate uh, actually might not be back next week. So you all are stuck with me for a while. Actually, and this ties into the promo segment. So Nate uh, has like a full-time job outside of this gig. And I also have other things outside of Techler that I do as well. And part of the reason is because, well, we don't have like 24 seven to be able to dedicate uh, to both Techler and the new oil respectively. And so uh, one of the ways we're able to dedicate the time we do dedicate to this is uh, thanks to our patrons. So you can be a part of that at patreon.com slash surveillance pod, where you can contribute to both of us. And that helps us keep this podcast going for free. Uh, hopefully forever and then we can put more time into things as well uh, the more people we get over there so thank you all very much for the active support and also don't forget that we do support LibraPay as well as Monero for people who don't like pay Patreon for whatever reason that is I know there's many complaints about Patreon out there so we're still going to offer those other alternatives all that can be found in the show notes and we appreciate all the support we can get now let's uh, dive into this highlight story so this actually came uh, very recently and it's a new report which finds very few open source projects are actively maintained. And I was pretty shocked to hear this number. So let me go through the news and then I'll cover uh, maybe some of my takeaways and analysis of the situation. So this is an analysis accounting for nearly 1.2 million open source software projects, primarily across four major ecosystems. And they found that only about 11% of projects were actively maintained. That means almost 90% are just not maintained. Quoting this, in the ninth annual State of the Software Supply Chain Report, published October 3rd, software supply chain management company Sonatype assessed over 1 million projects and reported an 18% decline this year in actively maintained projects. And again, just 11% of those were receiving active maintenance. The report also found some new projects unmaintained in 2022, which are now being maintained. And they have a lot of other stats in there as well. And I just wanted to quickly comment on this story. I think that for me, this is the highlight story because uh, there is a common sentiment and as great as open source is, there's this common sentiment that just because something is open source, it must be better uh, for your privacy and security. And, you know, a lot of these projects might have security vulnerabilities have been existed for years now, and they could be actively exploited projects. So um, the same thing applies to proprietary projects. If there is a not actively maintained proprietary project, it's going to suffer the same exact issue. So this actually has nothing to do with whether or not something is open source. I just wanted to shine a light on this because I think a lot of people just download any open source software without checking to see when the last time it was updated. So personally, what I do, uh, if I'm downloading an open source software, I'll normally check the GitHub or wherever they're repos are hosted and just make sure there's some activity there. If I see there hasn't been anything done in two plus years, I just won't even touch it because I want something that's going to be actively maintained. I want to make sure they're going to be able to push security updates if there's an issue. And I just want to make sure there's an active developer that's still working on a project. And that applies to proprietary projects as well. If you're using a proprietary software that hasn't received any kind of security updates or any kind of maintenance for years, think carefully before using it. With that out of the way, let's go into the data breaches. So there is a third Flagstar bank data breach since 2021, which affects 800,000 customers. So a data breach notification was sent to impacted customers that explains that Flagstar was indirectly impacted by Fizzerv, a vendor it uses for payment processing and mobile bank services, which was a result of MoveIt. So everyone can take their shots. Uh, The types of data that were compromised are redacted in the sample data breach notification letters. However, the entry on main 
Ukraine's data breach portal lists at least names and social security numbers as stolen by the threat actors. Next one, Air Europa data breach. Uh, customers warned to cancel their credit cards. So this is a Spanish airline and the country's third largest airline and a member of the SkyTeam Alliance, which warned customers on Monday to cancel their credit cards after attackers accessed their card information in a recent data breach. The credit card details exposed in the breach include card numbers, expiration dates, and the three-digit CVV code on the back of the payment cards. And it is uh, an unknown number of impacted customers. Next data breach is from Shadow PC, who's warned of a data breach as cyber criminals try to sell gamers information. For those who don't know, myself included, Shadow is a cloud gaming service providing users with high-end Windows PCs streamed to their local devices, like PCs, laptops, smartphones, tablets, and smart TVs, allowing them to run demanding AAA games on a virtual computer. This affected over 500,000 users and included date of births, addresses, full names, last four of the credit card, expiration date, IP connection log, email, and more. Contains only customers and not all users. I'm now wondering if this is a way I could maybe play some games on macOS, but I doubt that. Next data breach, Indian state government fixes website bug that revealed Aadhaar numbers and fingerprints. I apologize if I mispronounced that. Uh, a security researcher says a bug on an Indian state government website inadvertently revealed documents containing those numbers, identity cards, and copies of people's fingerprints. The bug was fixed last week after the security researcher disclosed the bug to local authorities. Now they found the bug in the West Bengal government's e-district web portal that allows state residents to access government services online, like obtaining birth and death certificates and building applications. They said the website bug meant it was possible to obtain land deeds, which contain records about the owners of a piece of land, from the e-district website by guessing sequential deed application numbers. It's not known if anyone else uh, discovered this bug, so they don't know if it's been exploited in the wild or anything like that, but at least it's been caught now and fixed. And uh, we're just going to keep on moving on to the companies. So Google had their event and we didn't actually throw this in the show notes, but we did cover this on TechLore Talks. Google Pixels are now going to have seven years of security updates, which is super cool. That's personally my big highlight from the Google event. But there is another big Google announcement, which is Google's making passkeys the default sign-in for personal accounts. So this applies to all their services and platforms. This means that the next time you sign into your Google account, you'll start seeing prompts to create and use passkeys, simplifying your future sign-ins. It also means you'll see the skip password when possible option toggled on in your Google account settings. So uh, just a big FYI for anyone curious about what's going on with passkeys in the Google ecosystem. And uh, also the next and final company news is from Brave, uh, the browser company who's laid off uh, 9% of its workforce. Uh, they didn't specify how many people this was, but it corroborated the, the development and said the decision was driven by the tough economic climate. Uh, and this did impact several departments, so they didn't just lay off a complete department. So uh, we don't have many details, but uh, maybe we'll get more updates on this as time goes on. So stay subscribed. Okay, so research. This is going to be a very technical thing, but it's actually extremely important and you you are dependent on this whether or not you know it. So this is a new protocol vulnerability that will haunt the web for years. And just to tell you how much of a haunt it is, it is Halloween after all, soon. Um, but this actually impacted people like Google, 
Mazen, Mazen, Microsoft, and Cloudflare, like they've actually been battling this as well. So they revealed this week that they battled massive record-setting DDoS attacks against their cloud infrastructure in both August and September. The recent attacks were particularly noteworthy because hackers generated them by exploiting a vulnerability in a foundational web protocol. This means that while patching efforts are well underway, fixes will need to essentially reach every web server globally before these attacks can actually stop. Uh, this is dubbed the HTTP2 rapid reset. The vulnerability can only be exploited for DDoS attacks. I'll give some more analysis on this soon, but just to finish up the story. Another facet of the situation is where the vulnerability came from. Rapid Reset isn't in a particular piece of software, but in the spec for the HTTP2 network protocol used for loading web pages. It works better than classic HTTP on mobile and uses less bandwidth, so it has been extremely widely adopted. And they are currently developing HTTP3, but I'm assuming most websites are going to be using version 2. Unlike a Windows bug that gets patched by Microsoft or a Safari bug that gets patched by Apple, in an OS update and not in a Safari update because Apple made some great decisions, a flaw in a protocol can't be fixed. I, I added that in. I'm not quoting the article when I said that. That's just my personal take on Apple's really silly decision to combo up Safari patches with an OS. But um, to continue back in the story, a flaw in a protocol can't be fixed by one central entity because each website implements the standard in its own way. When major cloud services and DDoS defense providers create fixes for their services, it goes a long way towards protecting everyone who uses the infrastructure. But organizations and individuals running their own web servers need to work out their own protections. Um, this is not a great situation because there isn't just a simple, oh, we're just going to patch this protocol or patch this software or patch this one thing and then everyone is now protected from that. This is one of those situations where we actually need to rely on a huge community effort to be able to patch this issue. So if you're someone who's listening to this and you're more technical and you might be developing things, make sure you educate yourself on this because you might have something, if you have any servers or anything like that, that might be dependent on this and there might be some things you can do to actually fix this issue and keep other people safe. And it's part of the reason why we have obviously this podcast so we can educate all of you um, and spread the word if you know anyone who might be impacted by this or they can do anything about it, definitely share this around. It's a very important thing. And while it might not impact you directly, it's definitely indirectly going to impact you. And uh, now the politics. So we're going to go over, actually, they're both from California. So woohoo, California people. Uh, first one is from Oakland. So privacy concerns raised as Oakland considers buying more automated license plate readers. This uh, commission has recommended that the city adopt a new ALPR policy, allowing roughly 300 new cameras to be installed throughout the city. The Oakland Privacy Advisory Commission voted Thursday to forward the policy to the city council for approval. If approved, it would allow the Oakland Police Department to contract with a private company, Atlanta-based Flock Safety, to install the cameras in hotspots identified by OPD. Speaking of Flock, man, oh, I can all I can think of when I hear a Flock is the Attack on Titan character. And uh, I'm really excited for hopefully the actual final episode coming soon. But I, I'm having doubts, you know, like everything's apparently the final season for years on end. So we'll see what happens. Uh, back to the story, the new policy would also limit data retention in the system to 30 days. According to the proposal, the flock safety system would cost a little more than $1 million for the first year of the three-year contract and $900,000 in each of the following two years. It would replace an existing ALPR system that was installed on 30 or so marked police vehicles, but is no longer operational, according to an OPD report from June. So we like to draw attention to these stories to kind of just keep you all updated on what's going on uh, with the type of surveillance tools that are being implemented by police departments. And just to highlight where both I believe Nate and I stand on this is we're not necessarily 
against all forms of these tools being used. We just want clear oversight, clear protocols, and precautions in place to protect individuals and to make sure these types of tools aren't being abused. That's the big problem. And when we see these stories, we don't normally see why should we trust this? Why should this be safe? What, what are the kind of things that we can uh, be told to reassure us that this is actually being done in a safe way that's protecting people and not putting people in further jeopardy? So that's the kind of stuff that we're asking. And uh, yeah, so if you're in Oakland, uh, do what you can and uh, keep yourself educated on this issue. And the last uh, political story is very quick, also again from California, and Governor Newsom signs a bill that would make it easier to delete online personal data. So the Delete Act is what it's called, and it's been signed, meaning that by 2026, Californians will be able to request all data brokers in the state delete their data with a single request. That's big news. Now, I'm very curious behind the logistics of this, because for those who don't know, the web of the data broker industry is insane. And there isn't just a single person you just contact and go, hey, just delete all my data for me. So I'm going to be very curious to hear how this is done, uh, how successful it even is or how feasible it is. Um, but it's not until 2026. So maybe these companies will have to find a way to figure this out in the next few years. So I'm excited for this as a Californian. And hopefully it means that I can just I don't know, uh, maybe in a few years, there'll be a Techler video about this. All right, and free and open source news. Ubuntu 23.10 is a Minotaur? I'm not sure, but it, that moves faster and takes up less space. Uh, the OS, not the Minotaur. So two of the biggest changes in this new version are in the installer. So now Ubuntu defaults to a default installation, which is quite different from what the default was even just one release prior. Default is described as just the essentials, web browser, and basic utilities, while full is an offline-friendly selection of office tools, utilities, web browsers, and games. Default is somewhat similar to what minimal used to be in prior versions, while full is intended for those who are offline or have slow connections or just want as many options as possible right away. I think it's cool, and maybe that reflects more of a web-based direction that uh, things are going in, because maybe a lot of people don't even need to use LibreOffice when they're using online editors anyway. Uh, but yeah, uh, you still have the option to use both. Um, a little bit more on the story. Elsewhere in the installer, you can now choose ZFS as your primary file system. There's also an experimental option to set up a TPM full disk encryption rather than rely entirely on passphrases to encrypt your disk, which is also pretty neat. This brings Ubuntu up to speed with Windows and offering a way to both secure your system and find out the hard way that you lack a backup key to get in after messing with your boot options. That's a note from Nate. <laughs> uh, and it's very true. So uh, if you do do this, make sure you're keeping backups and ways to get in uh, in case you forget something or etc. You guys know the deal. Just to wrap up the story, most of the other user-facing changes come from the upgrade to GNOME 45, and this is the last release from the next major LTS version. So uh, for those who like Ubuntu, there you go. Uh, next story is from Mulvab Browser 13.0, which was released with multilingual support, and I'm fairly certain this is their first major release update since their uh, initial release of Mulvab Browser. So it's exciting to see them make it to this first major release because it's very common for new browsers to pop up and disappear. But as we used to say, uh, when Mulvab released their browser, this is like an actual real thing developed by a real team that's in formal collaboration with the Tor project. So I personally didn't feel like this is something that was going to go away anytime soon. Uh, but just uh, to quickly summarize this, because there's way too many changes, check the article. It includes a bigger window on startup, more privacy-focused search engines listed by default, and several behind-the-scenes updates to keep hardening the browser. They have a massive list of changes on their GitHub. Uh, we also made a short list of those on the TechLore forum for those on the forum. Um, so yeah, it's definitely some fun stuff there. And I'm just happy to see Mulvad continuing to push the envelope with the browser.
browser. And the last open source article is from Mastodon, who apparently has uh, 407,000 plus more monthly users than it thought. Uh, so there was a connectivity error due to their network, and the issue has now been resolved, which now leaves Mastodon with a total of 1.8 million monthly active users at present, which is an increase of 5% month over month and 10,000 servers, which is up 12%. Now that's still a lot smaller than other alternatives, but I think that's a big win either way for Mastodon and uh, 2 million people, almost 2 million people is still a lot of people. So uh, yeah, for people in Mastodon, woot woot. Uh, we're all on Mastodon, so you can follow Nate on Mastodon, you can follow Surveillance Report on Mastodon, you can follow The New Oil on Mastodon, you can follow Techler on Mastodon, you can follow me on Mastodon. Oh my gosh, so many things you can follow, isn't that so fun? <laughs> so, uh, Misfits, uh, this is the last section of the news. So pretty much Android devices with backdoored firmware was found in US schools. As part of the global cybercriminal operation called Badbox, Human Security found a threat actor relied on supply chain compromise to infect the firmware of more than 70,000 Android smartphones, CTV boxes, and tablet devices with the Triata malware. The infected devices come from at least one Chinese manufacturer, but before they are delivered to resellers, physical retail stores, and e-commerce warehouses, a backdoor was injected into the firmware. Products known to contain the backdoor have been found on public school networks throughout the US. So uh, a small detail, it sounds like these were school issued devices, at least that's what the article seems to hint at. But as far as I know, and based on the direct quote here, it's just the backdoor has been found on public school networks. So they probably did traffic analysis on a school network and found that students had these devices. It's unclear if they got them from the schools, but it's very possible some kids just ordered one of these from Amazon and they had it connected to the school network. Now this was discovered in 2016. Triata is a modular Trojan residing in a device's RAM relying on the Zgoat process to hook all applications uh, relying on the process to hook all applications on Android, actively using root privileges to substitute system files. Over time, the malware went through various iterations and was found pre-installed on low-cost Android devices on at least two occasions. So for those curious how to avoid a situation like this, get devices from trusted sources and avoid these cheap kind of sus devices. Um, this is part of the reason why, so you're gonna see a lot of, you know, I complain about not having small phones, for example. There actually are some like very miniature small Android devices that they make that are just, random companies that make these for a low cost. I try to avoid those because I can't really easily verify what's installed on it. And so really be careful when you're going for these budget devices. If you get a device from a formal seller, they have a ton of systems in place to help prevent these supply chain attacks. Uh, they actually had a very interesting talk about this in USENIC's Enigma 2019. A Google employee talked about their supply chain security and how they have to really, you know, obviously double down on how they keep their devices secure to make sure the device you order from the website is kept secure and isn't running any kind of third-party code that's not authorized by them. And I'm sure Apple has to deal with a very similar issue, but these companies are better equipped to deal with that. Um, so just something to think about and make sure you're getting your devices from trusted places. And the last story of the week, Crunchyroll violated viewers' privacy. Some may be entitled to part, not the whole, a part of a $16 million settlement. This was filed in September, 2022. The complaint accused parent company, Sony, I didn't know Sony owned Crunchyroll, of sharing users' personal viewing information from third-party sites, including Facebook and Google, without their knowledge, which is a violation of the Video Privacy Protection Act. Crunchyroll has denied any wrongdoing in the case. McClatchy News reached out to the company for comment and was awaiting a response. Subscribers have until December 12th to submit a claim. Uh, so definitely do that if you are a Crunchyroll customer and 
and want to claim that. As always, uh, you might have to give up some personal information, so it's kind of your decision whether or not you want to claim this and uh, I guess do make make a statement, etc. Or or you can just ignore this. It's really your call. Um, I don't think there's a right way to do this. So if you're a Crunchyroll user, reflect on that. Uh, and that was really it for the week. Pretty short week. Uh, I tried to keep it pretty brief. So again, many open source projects aren't maintained and what that means for you. Definitely keep that in mind when you're installing software. There's that new massive protocol vulnerability and there were some little open source news updates. So this was surveillance support 153. And again, uh, we really can't do this without our patrons and we hope to continue to do this forever and ever um, because of all of our patrons. And so if you want to be a part of that, join us at patreon.com slash surveillance pod. We super appreciate it. We really can't do it without all of you. So thank you very much. And if you don't like Patreon, you're valid for not liking Patreon. Uh, we do also support Monero and LibrePay contributions. And you can find all of those in the show notes. We can't do this without all of you supporters. And we do see everyone on Monero who sends us Monero. We don't know who the hell you are, but we do see your contributions. And that's really it for the week. So I will see you next week. Again, it will be just me. So uh, you're welcome or sorry, depending on who you like better. But we will see you both soon. What? No, I, I will see you all soon. And Nate should be back in a couple weeks with me.